The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm number 123, 121, on the Red Bible pages 622. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by the day nor the moon by the night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 26. It's on page 1156 in your red Bibles. It'd be great if you had that open in front of you for our meditation this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 26. Let us hear God's word. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Canadian philosopher uh, Charles Taylor asks this question. I think it's a good one. How in the world can it be that 500 years ago in the West, it was almost impossible to not believe in God? But today, Just 500 years later, it's almost normal not to believe in God. And then Charles Taylor takes almost 1,000 pages to try to answer this question. I have it on audiobook, right? And it's 42 hours long. (laughs) That's a lot of kilometers. Now, to make his very long story short, here's what Charles Taylor says. Spoiler alert, in case you were going to read all 1,000 pages. He says it's not that science has beaten faith. But he says, instead, here's what's happened. Culture has changed and evolved so that the social and intellectual conditions that are needed to support atheism are now in place, and they weren't 500 years ago. In other words, today, Western culture values skepticism rather than, as in the past, seeing it as a threat to society itself. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is the creed's last teaching for us. Now today, as I said with the children, many people have a hard time believing in the resurrection of the body. Why? Because, again, our culture is generally skeptical about the supernatural. And what could be more supernatural than resurrection and eternal life? But for the Greco-Roman culture, of Paul's day 2,000 years ago. The resurrection was hard for them too, but not for the same reasons. For us, it feels like a scientific impossibility, right? That just doesn't happen. But for the Greeks and Romans of Paul's day, the resurrection of bodies was a moral impossibility. You might even say an aesthetic impossibility. That's just a fancy way of saying that they thought the idea of bodies, and especially resurrected bodies, was both bad and ugly. Because they believed that the body is unfortunate. It's a rusty cage, and our souls are stuck inside of it and want to get out. And so this doctrine, I believe in the resurrection of the body, was actually 
just as difficult to believe 2,000 years ago as it is today, just for different reasons. And so if the message of the resurrection of Jesus and the message of the bodily resurrection and then the glorification of Christian believers, if this message was going to make it and thrive in the ancient world, it was going to have to overcome these cultural hurdles. It would have to be so good and true and beautiful that these people would want to believe it and then find it to be a great power and a great truth. And guess what? Many of them did. And I think this message still has great power and beauty today. I want you to see three things that Paul cap- that rather captured Paul's heart and his imagination about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Three things that people in the first century world found almost unbelievable, almost too good to be true, but found so beautiful and so true that it did capture so many of their hearts and imaginations. So what are these three things? The first one is this, and it's plain as day. Verse 20, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now there were people in Corinth, as we read, who were starting to say that the dead will not be raised in their bodies to new life. They started saying, look, Christians, of course we have to believe in Jesus' resurrection, but come on, in our culture, for the gospel to be good news, we can't go around saying that every dead body in human history will be raised to life. That's just gross and nasty. It's the soul that counts, after all, and not the body, they were saying. And Paul shows them that actually, if they think like this, if they talk like this, then they aren't just disgusted with the body in general and with the Christian hope for the resurrection of the body. If they talk and think like this, they're actually disgusted with Jesus Christ. They're disgusted with his body and his resurrection. They're disgusted with God's own plan to restore and save humanity through the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't want to be disgusted with that, do they? If there's no resurrection of the dead, if the very idea is unthinkable and disgusting, then Paul says, verse 16, then Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, was he then? He's saying, you're putting the crucified and risen Lord, or you're trying to, put him back in the tomb if you say that the dead will not be raised. And then, sort of just to add this along with it, Paul says, verse 15, by the way, if you say all this, you're calling us liars because we've told you that the dead will be raised in Christ on the last day. It's the very center of our message, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So do you really want to call us the chosen disciples and spokespeople of the Lord Jesus? You really want to call us fools and idiots? I'm not sure you do, Paul says. 
so Paul says, Jesus Christ has been raised, has been glorified, and he'll never die again. And that became beautiful to many, both then and now. Here's the second thing he says. Your body will be raised on the last day, not just the body of Jesus, verses 22 to 23. If your body and soul belong to Jesus, then you'll not only be raised, but raised and glorified. And here the intensity, really kind of the awkwardness of Paul's argument keeps heating up, right? It gets more personal. He says, if there's no resurrection of the body, then there's no resurrection of Jesus. And if there is no resurrection of Jesus, then you Corinthians are in really big trouble. Because the resurrection of Jesus was the public announcement that Jesus was finally in human history the one true human being who served God his whole life, who truly loved his neighbor without any mixed motivations, but purely and selflessly. And by raising Jesus from the dead, God was declaring that Jesus' perfect life mattered, that Jesus' sacrificial death counted, that Jesus had indeed canceled the guilt of our sins and freed us to walk forever in newness of life. That's what the resurrection meant. If, Paul says in verse 17, there's no bodily resurrection, then there's no resurrection of Jesus, and therefore, your faith in Jesus is a complete waste of time. And worst of all, your sins have not been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Instead, you're still stuck inside of them. He's saying, look, you think the human body is nasty? You think it's a disgusting cage that you can't get out of? Well, you've got this all wrong. Because the guilt of your sin is the cage that's keeping you from freedom. The guilt of your sin is this unbearable weight on your back. The guilt of your sin is this long, dark tunnel, and there's no light at the end of it. And so he's saying that without Jesus' bodily resurrection, you're still stuck in your sins. And any belief that you might have that God loved you and forgave you in Jesus Christ is completely pointless if Jesus is not raised. I think as I've said before, the New Testament is not afraid to talk about death, is it? But here's the other thing, I think I've said this before too. When the New Testament talks about the death of Christian believers after the resurrection of Jesus, it never says that they are dead. They are dead, of course, but it never says that they are. Instead, it always says something like, they have fallen asleep. It says that twice in our passage. But here Paul says, verse 18, look, if the dead are not going to be raised, then that means that your Christian friends and family aren't sleeping, as we like to say. 
They're not only dead, dead, but they're lost forever. And all of this means, Paul concludes, that everyone who looks at you Christians and thinks, wow, look at these pathetic people who believe in nonsense, base their entire lives on these dumb beliefs that are themselves completely nonsense. Gosh, Paul's saying if there's no resurrection, then these people are right. And we Christians are pitiful and pathetic losers who have wasted our time and wasted our Sundays and wasted our lives. But of course, Paul says, verse 20, that not only has Jesus been raised from the dead, but he says, Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is teaching us that actually, there aren't two resurrections, Jesus's and ours, but rather, Paul's teaching us what the creed teaches us here, to believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. One resurrection, Jesus' bodily resurrection, is, Paul says, the first fruits of the harvest, the guarantee that a full harvest is coming right behind it, right? When the first fruits come in, verse 23, then you can start planning the harvest festival because you can be sure it's going to happen. Why can you have hope for your own body to be raised? Why can I trust that my grandmother, who we buried two weeks ago in Ohio, will be raised in glory? Because the resurrection of the body has already begun in Jesus' own body. What a marvel. And then the third thing. Not only is Jesus certainly raised, not only is our bodily resurrection guaranteed in Jesus' resurrection, but this third thing. The whole creation can now hope for its own resurrection and glorification. Now, it's all over the Bible. It's not the center of this passage, this idea. But it's kind of here, subtly. When God completes Jesus' resurrection in our resurrection, then finally, verse 24, he will overthrow, Jesus will, every spiritual and earthly authority, every authority that's determined to keep creation cursed and dying. And then he will hand over his conquered kingdom to his heavenly father. See, we can't forget that the Bible itself, and not just the creed, begins with God's good creation, and then ends with the renewal of God's good creation. That the Bible begins in the garden, and then all those pages later ends in a beautiful garden city. That means that the Bible starts with a woman and a man and the creator God enjoying each other's company and then ends with God's temple spreading throughout the entire creation where women and men can enjoy his presence, live under the light of his smile in a renewed creation forever and ever. When Jesus puts the final enemy 
death, verse 26, under his feet, then the new creation will burst into life, unhindered by death and decay. The Dutch-American theologian Anthony Huckelma says, the doctrine of the resurrection of the body makes no sense apart from the doctrine of the new earth. And he's right. And that new earth is the world in which we will experience, as the creed says, the life everlasting. In the end, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of, of the life everlasting. This is not some abstract point of Christian doctrine that you know you can take it or leave it, you can accept it or not. This is the hope of the entire world, of creation itself, the hope for which creation groans like a woman in labor. Everything, absolutely everything, depends upon it. So that's what the creed's teaching us to believe, and Paul's teaching us to believe about the resurrection of the body. Let's ask briefly, how do we live this belief if we really believe it? Just a couple of ideas. Number one, we honor our bodies. After all, hard to believe, right? Looking at us. I mean, you all are beautiful people. But, but hard to believe, looking around, that these are the bodies that will be raised and glorified. The same ones. And even right now, the scriptures teach that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God dwells here. And that's why Paul says in this same letter, chapter 6, that it is ridiculous to unite your body to a prostitute, for example, if your body is created and then redeemed to be united to Jesus Christ and his own glorious body filled with the Holy Spirit. The message is your body in Christ is holy. It's been bought at the price of Jesus' own body. So dignify your body. Make your very body the center of God's kingdom activity in your life. That's what it's there for. And so we feed and we clothe our bodies, right? We exercise them. I've been trying to do more of this lazy man though that I am. We give our bodies meaningful work to do, joyful play, deep, significant rest. We also honor our neighbor's bodies, don't we? If our bodies, redeemed at a cost, don't even belong to us in the first place, but to Jesus, then certainly our neighbor's bodies don't belong to us. They were made for the Lord. And so we don't objectify and use them. We don't consume them. Whether that's in pornography or any kind of sexual immorality at all, uh, Rosaria Butterfield says, I think very well, that all sexual sin is essentially predatory. And so, because we believe in the resurrection of the body, we cannot prey on our neighbor's body. And we also need to not have contempt for our neighbor's bodies. They might be poor and malnourished, 
We can't hate them. They might be limited and vulnerable, maybe because of disease or disorder or age, young or old. Or maybe they don't meet our society's ridiculous standards of beauty. We can't have contempt for, but honor our neighbor's bodies. Christians are the people who treasure other people's bodies by treating other people in their bodies as reminders of the very body of Jesus Christ, their Savior. C.S. Lewis once wrote that our neighbor is just about the holiest thing that we will ever experience. Their bodies will be raised from the dead. If they belong to Christ, they'll be glorified, become so beautiful and so capable that we can hardly imagine it now. And these are the people that we're bumping into every day. So let's believe in the resurrection of the body by honoring and loving not just our own, but our neighbor's bodies, made by Christ, made for his glory. So that's what the creed teaches. That's just a start at how we can live what the creed teaches. And finally, we need to ask ourselves, do we believe it? You know, we've been studying the Apostles' Creed and the scriptures for 11 weeks now. The very beginning starts before we were even around. God, a loving and powerful creator, made heaven and earth. All these weeks later now, the creed finishes off. And this same God who made all things will make all things new. He's begun this all things new in Jesus Christ and his own resurrected body. And he'll bring it to completion in our very bodies and in the glorious renewed world where we will live forever as we've always been meant to live. It's a stunning claim, isn't it? From start to finish, the creed is so strange, but so beautiful. The current creed of our culture is a little different, right? It's something like this. I believe we are a complete accident. I believe that by blind chance, space and time and heat and gravity and energy, all of those things came together to make life possible on this one random rock orbiting this completely insignificant minor star. I believe that everything we think and feel and do from love to culture to art to war is nothing but a product of this blind chance. I believe that nevertheless, life is really meaningful if we give it meaning. I believe somehow that everyone must be kind and generous to other people for no obvious reason. I believe that at the end of our lives, our bodies and our spirits will be gone forever. I believe that our planet will be destroyed when our star explodes and everything about our species and our world will be gone, world with a fiery end, amen. But we are called to something different, aren't we? 
We're called to confess and to believe and live another reality. I believe that a good God made our world. I believe that this good world has gone bad because of us. But I believe that he has redeemed us and his world, and he will fully renew us and his world, world without end. Amen. At the end of all this, we just need to ask ourselves, which of these two creeds is really good? Which of them is true? Which of them is beautiful? Do you believe in the name of Jesus? And do you believe, therefore, in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? It could change your life and change your eternal life if you do. I want to call you to believe it. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us faith to believe this with man impossible good news, but with God possible in Christ good news. Help us to believe it in a way that works its way into our lives as we honor our bodies and the ones around us. Transform us from within. Give us hope and faith when we grieve the death of our loved ones in Christ. And keep us ready for the day when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. We want, to, we want you to remember us when you come into your kingdom. And we long for the day when all things are made new and we are there with you in paradise. So help our unbelief. In all of these 11 lessons from the creed, help our unbelief. We believe, but help our unbelief by the power of your spirit and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.